Section four of Starlight Ranch and Other Stories of Army Life on the Frontier by Charles King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story two, well one, or from the plains to the point. Chapter two, cavalry on the march. It was a lovely June morning when the Fifth Cavalry started on its march. Camp was struck at daybreak, and soon after five o'clock, while the sun was still low in the east and the dewdrops were sparkling on the buffalo grass, the long column was winding up the bare rolling divide which lay between the valleys of Crow and Lodgepole Creeks. In plain view, only thirty miles away to the west, were the summits of the Rocky Mountains but such is the altitude of this upland prairie sloping away eastward between the two forks of the platte river that these summits appear to be nothing more than a low range of hills shutting off the western horizon looking southward from the laramie road all the year round one can see the great peaks of the range longs and hans and pikes glistening in their mantles of snow and down there near them in colorado the mountains slope abruptly into the valley of the South Platte. Up here in Wyoming, the Rockies go rolling and billowing far out to the east, and the entire stretch of country, from what are called the Black Hills of Wyoming, in contradistinction to the Black Hills of Dakota, far east as the junction of the forks of the Platte, is one vast inclined plain. The Union Pacific Railway winds over these Black Hills at Sherman, the lowest point the engineers could find, and Sherman is over 8,000 feet above the sea. From Sherman eastward, in less than an hour's run, the cars go sliding down with smoking brakes to Cheyenne, a fall of 2,000 feet. But the wagon road from Cheyenne to Fort Laramie twists and winds among the ravines and over the divides of this lofty prairie so that ralph and his soldier friends while riding jauntily over the hard-beaten track this clear crisp sunshiny breezy morning were twice as high above the sea as they would have been at the tip-top of the catskills and higher even than had they been at the very summit of mount washington the air at this height though rare is keen and exhilarating and one needs no second look at the troopers to see how bright are their eyes and how nimble and elastic is the pace of their steeds the commanding officer with his adjutant and orderlies and a little group of staff sergeants had halted at the crest of one of these ridges and was looking back at the advancing column beside the winding road was strung a line of wires the military telegraph to the border forts and with the exception of those bare poles not a stick of timber was anywhere in sight the whole surface is destitute of bush or tree but the thick little bunches of gray-green grass that cover it everywhere are rich with juice and nutriment this is the buffalo grass of the western prairies and the moment the horses heads are released down go their nozzles and they are cropping eagerly and gratefully far as the eye can see to the north and east it roams over a rolling tumbling surface that seems to have become suddenly petrified far to the south are the snow shimmering peaks near at hand to the west are the gloomy gorges and ravines and wide wastes of upland of the black hills of wyoming and so clear is the air that they seem but a short hour's gallop away 
There is something strangely deceptive about the distances in an atmosphere so rare and clear as this. A young surgeon was taking his first ride with a cavalry column in the wide west, and as he looked back into the valley through which they had been marching for over half an hour, his face was clouded with an expression of odd perplexity. "'What's the matter, doctor?' asked the adjutant, with a grin on his face. "'Are you wondering whether those fellows really are United States regulars?' And the young officer nodded towards the long column of horsemen in broad-rimmed slouch hats and flannel shirts or fanciful garb of Indian tanned buckskin. Even among the officers there was hardly a sign of the uniform or trappings which distinguished the soldiers in garrison. "'No, it isn't that. I knew that you fellows who had served so long in Arizona had got out of the way of wearing uniform in the field against Indians.' What I can't understand is that ridge over there. I thought we had been down in a hollow for the last half hour. Yet look at it. We must have come over that when I was thinking of something else. Not a bit of it, doctor, laughed the colonel. That's where we dismounted and took a short rest and gave the horses a chance to pick a bit. Why, but, colonel, that must have been two miles back. Full half an hour ago. You don't mean that ridge is two miles away. I could almost hit that man riding down the road towards us. It would be a wonderful shot, doctor. That man is one of the teamsters who went back after a dropped pistol. He is a mile and a half away. The doctor's eyes were wide open with wonder. Of course, you must know, Colonel, but it is incomprehensible to me. It is easily proved, doctor. Take these two telegraph poles nearest us, and tell me how far they are apart." The doctor looked carefully from one pole to another. Only a single wire was strung along the line, and the poles were stout and strong. After a moment's study, he said, "'Well, they're just about seventy-five yards apart.' "'More than that, doctor. They are a good hundred yards. But even at your estimate, just count the poles back to that ridge. Of course, they are equidistant, or nearly so, all along, and tell me how far you make it." The doctor's eyes began to dilate again as he silently took account of the number. "'I declare, there are over twenty to the rear of the wagon-train, and nearly forty across the ridge. I give it up.' "'And now look here,' said the colonel, pointing out to the eastward where some lithe-limbed hounds were coursing over the prairie with Ralph on his fleet sorrel racing in pursuit. Look at young McCrae out there, where there are no telegraph poles to help you judge the distance. If he were an Indian whom you wanted to bring down, what would you set your sights at, providing you had time to set them at all? And the veteran Indian fighter smiled grimly. The doctor shook his head. It is too big a puzzle for me, he answered. Five minutes ago I would have said three hundred at the utmost, but I don't know now. How about that, Nihil? asked the colonel, turning to a soldier riding with the headquarters party. Nihil's brown hand goes up to the brim of his scouting hat in a salute, but he shook his head. The bullet would kick up a dust this side of him, sir, was the answer. People sometimes wonder why it is we manage to hit so few of these Cheyennes or Sioux in our battles with them, said the colonel. Now you can get an idea of one of the difficulties. They rarely come within six hundred yards of us, 
when they are attacking a train or an infantry escort, and are always riding full tilt, just as you saw Ralph just now. It is next to impossible to hit them. Oh, I understand, said the doctor. How splendidly that boy rides. Ralph? Yes, he's a genuine trooper. Now there's a boy whose whole ambition is to go to West Point. He's a manly, truthful, dutiful young fellow, born and raised in the army, knows the plains by heart, and just the one to make a brilliant and valuable cavalry officer. But there isn't a ghost of a chance for him. Why not? Why not? Why, how is he to get an appointment? If he had a home somewhere in the East, and his father had influence with the congressman of the district, it might be done. But the sons of army officers have really very little chance. The president used to have ten appointments a year, but Congress took them away from him. They thought there were too many cadets at the point. But while they were virtuously willing to reduce somebody else's prerogatives in that line, it did not occur to them that they might trim a little on their own. Now the president is allowed only ten all told, and can appoint no boy until some of his ten are graduated or otherwise disposed of. It really gives him only two or three appointments a year, and he has probably a thousand applicants for every one. What chance has an army boy in Wyoming against the son of some fellow with senators and representatives at his back in Washington? If the army could name an occasional candidate, a boy like Ralph would be sure to go, and we would have more soldiers and fewer scientists in the cavalry. By this time the head of the compact column was well up, and the captain of the leading troop, riding with his first lieutenant in front of his sets of fours, looked inquiringly at the colonel, as though half expectant of a signal to halt or change the gate. Receiving none, and seeing that the colonel had probably stopped to look over his command, the senior troop-leader pushed steadily on. Behind him, four abreast, came the dragoons, a stalwart, sunburned, soldierly-looking lot, not a particle of show or glitter in their attire or equipment, utterly unlike the dazzling hussars of England or the European continent when the troopers of the United States are out on the broad prairies of the West for business, as they put it, hardly a brass button, even, is to be seen. The colonel notes with satisfaction the nimble, active pace of the horses as they go by at rapid walk, and the easy seat of the men in their saddles. First the bays of K Troop trip quickly past, then the beautiful sleek greys of B, Captain Montgomery's company then more bays in I and A and D, and then some sixty-five blacks, C-troops color. There are two sorrel troops in the regiment and more bays, and later in the year, when new horses are obtained, the fifth had a roan and a dark brown troop. But in June, when they were marching up to take their part in the great campaign that followed, only two of their companies were not mounted on bright bay horses, and one and all they were in the pink of condition, and eager for a burst cross country. It was, however, their colonel's desire to take them to their destination in good trim, and he permitted no larking. They had several hundred miles of weary marching before them. Much of the country beyond the Platte was badlands, where the grass is scant and poor, the soil ashen and spongy, 
and the water densely alkaline. All this would tell very sensibly upon the condition of horses that all winter long had been comfortably stabled, regularly groomed and grain-fed, and watered only in pure running streams flushed by springs or melting snow. It was all very well for young Ralph to be coursing about on his feet, elastic sorrel, radiant with delight, as the boy was at being again out on the plains and in the saddle. But the cavalry commander's first care must be to bring his horses to the scene of action in the most effective state of health and soundness. The first few days' marching, therefore, had to be watched with the utmost care. As the noon hour approached, the doctor noted how the hills off to the west seemed to be growing higher, and that there were broader vistas of wide ranges of barren slopes to the east and north. The colonel was riding some distance ahead of the battalion, his little escort close beside, and Ralph was giving Buford a resting spell and placidly ambling alongside the doctor. Sergeant Wells was riding somewhere in the column with some chum of old days. He belonged to another regiment, but knew the fifth of old. The hounds had tired of chasing over a waterless country, and with lolling tongues were trotting behind their master's horses. The doctor was vastly interested in what he had heard of Ralph, and engaged him in talk. Just as they came in sight of the broad open valley, in which runs the sparkling lodge-pole, a two-horse wagon rumbled up alongside, and there on the front seat was Farron, the ranchman, with bright-eyed, bonny-faced little Jessie smiling beside him. "'We've caught you, Ralph,' he laughed, though we left Russell an hour or more behind you. I suppose you'll all camp at Lodgepole for the night. We're going on to the chug.' "'Hadn't you better see the Colonel about that?' asked Ralph anxiously. "'Oh, it's all right. I got telegrams from Laramie and the Chug, both, just before we left Russell. Not an Indian's been heard of this side of the Platte, and your father's troop has just got in to Laramie.' "'Has he?' exclaimed Ralph with delight. "'Then he knows I've started, and perhaps he'll come on to the Chug or Eagle's Nest and meet me.' "'More'n likely,' answered Farron. You and the sergeant had better come ahead and spend the night with me at the ranch. I have no doubt the colonel will let us go ahead with you, answered Ralph, but the ranch is too far off the road. We would have to stay at Phillips for the night. What say you, sergeant? he asked as Wells came loping up alongside. The very plan, I think. Somebody will surely come ahead to meet us, and we can make Laramie two days before the fifth. Then good-bye, doctor. I must ask the colonel first, but we'll see you at Laramie. Good-bye, Ralph, and good luck to you in getting that cadetship. Oh, well, I must trust to luck for that. Father says it all depends on my getting General Sheridan to back me. If he would only ask for me, or if I could only do something to make him glad to ask. But what chance is there? What chance, indeed? Ralph McCrae little dreamed that at that very moment General Sheridan, far away in Chicago, was reading dispatches that determined him to go at once, himself, to Red Cloud Agency, that in four days more the General would be there, at Laramie, and that in two wonderful days meantime. But who was there who dreamed what would happen meantime? End of Section 4